And for the rest of us, we can take out our Bibles and turn together to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings, beginning in chapter 23 today. We're going to begin just a moment in verse 21. You know, this summer, um, part of the preaching plan that we've done, with the exception of when missionaries have come to visit us, has been to work our way through the same texts that you've been reading if you're following along with us in our two-year Bible reading plan. If you are not reading along with us, and and currently you don't have a Bible reading plan, I'm going to continue to invite you to join us. Uh, If you go onto our app, you can look on there. We've got a little set up there for you to figure out what the days are, what the Bible reading is, and you can follow right along with us. And one of the great things that I've found encouraging about this is whenever I'm talking with other people, Right away, we got something in common regarding the Word, insights that each person is having, things that we can share together with one another. So if you have your own Bible reading plan, hey, more power to you. That's great. You continue. But if you're looking for something, join us so that you get your nose in the book and allow God to speak to you through His Word. Second Kings chapter 23, would you all stand with me as I read just a few verses beginning in verse 21? It says, then the king commanded all the people saying, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, which by the way, that's 370 year gap, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. And moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Father, our prayer is, as it is each week, that your words speak. Left to ourselves, this is ink on a page. But by the power of your spirit, this changes us. This cuts us to the very core of who we are and what we believe and how we think. So take your word and speak and minister to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I don't know if you've ever... I'm sure all of you have at some point along the way. You visited a place that was familiar to you once upon a time. But now that you go, the buildings are all still there, but nothing is the same. Everything around it has changed. My parents still live in the same place in which I grew up, and there's a particular part of the town that when I've been, or at least the last time I went, it's sort of an industrial section of town. But all of that has changed. So whereas once before, this was an area that would typically tend to be blue collar and a lot of people driving trucks, uh, now it's hipsters and uh, they're driving hoverboards on the city blocks. It used to be industry that was there and all kinds of sounds of machinery operating. Now it's nearly all restaurants and the sounds that you hear generally are the sounds of live music playing in these various restaurants. And if I go back and I start walking along the streets, um, before long, as I started thinking, if someone said, hey, try to give me directions based on what is currently established there, I would be totally lost. 
because none of it is familiar, even though the buildings are all still there. Well, if we want to talk about business, industry, uh, sections of our town, that's all well and good. We expect progress. We expect development to happen along the way. But what happens when you take the place where the people of God all gather together and the building still looks the exact same? Nothing has changed. And yet when you go inside, the worship that is happening is unrecognizable. You don't even see it being offered up to the true God. When the Jew had been rescued from Israel, or from the Egypt, several years before, God had told them, I want you to build me a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was really more of a tent. Uh, it was a means by which God said, this is where I'm going to put my dwelling. This is how you will approach me. And he gave them very specific instructions on what that would look like and how they were to do it. Fast forward many years ahead, though, and you have a fellow named Solomon who comes along and he says, I'm going to build a temple. And this one, this one is going to be magnificent. And it was. And it had all the things that were important in there. You had all the items in the temple that were supposed to be there, culminating in the Holy of Holies, the place by which you would go and find the Ark of the Covenant. And year by year, the priest would take the blood of a sacrifice and sprinkle it on top of that altar. Only the high priest would do it once a year. And it would be that reminder that as God looked down on his violated law, there was a blood filter that had gone in to intercede on behalf of the people to, to atone, to cover for their sins. And this is the way in which they would worship. But 400 years has a way of changing things. And for them, it most certainly did. It started kind of slowly at first within the temple. Just minor changes here and there. But then we had an individual. He was a king. His name was Manasseh. Manasseh took over the throne and reigned for 55 years, followed by a son, his son, who only reigned for two years before he was killed. But everything had changed inside that temple. And rather than going into the temple with the expectation that you would see and you would experience the light of God, it's horrific to think that really your experience would be more like the red light district of Amsterdam. That's what is happening within the temple at this time. If you have ever thought, man, things have changed in our day such that I don't even recognize our country, which is what mostly the older generation always says. Uh, well, they would have said the same thing in their day. Things have changed so drastically, we don't even recognize who God is and how we would worship him. 370 years of slip culminating in the last 57 years before the story that we read just a few moments ago. 57. You realize 57 years ago, LBJ was president. That wasn't that long ago. Relatively soon. Well, King Manasseh and his son had rejected God completely. And there, it was Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, who had actually brought about a type of a, um, uh, a renewal, a spiritual renewal within the kingdom. But Manasseh had rejected all of that. And instead, what he did was he brought these cult deities called um, Baal and Ashtoreth. Each of them, Baal was the male figure, Ashtoreth was the female figure, the cult deities of the day. And between the two of them, there was meant to be these relations, if you get my drift, by which you would have this seed that would come. And often that was perceived as the rain that would fertilize the fields. 
And society in that day, because of this type of a faith and religion, had become sex-crazed. Does that sound familiar to you? If you were to have entered the temple, the minute you would have walked up to that door, that entrance, to the left and to the right, you would have found horses and a chariot. And I don't know if they were literal live horses and a live chariot or figures of each, but they were there for a reason. This was the way in which you would worship the sun god. So the chariot is right in front of the entrance as you got ready to walk in as the reminder, as you go in to worship God, don't forget to worship this one too, the sun god. Once you got inside, you would find that to the left there, you'll see these little rooms that were set up to the tabernacle. This is where the priests were meant to live. Instead, you had male prostitutes who had moved into those places as a means of worship of the cult deities that I just mentioned. So like COVID, there is a spiritual pandemic that had gone on within this nation, and it had completely taken over. Everyone was infected. And if you had been there, I'm confident you would have said some of the same things I've heard some of you say. Things are too far gone. There's no way it can change. There's no transformation that we can expect that will happen here. Well, in the midst of all this degradation of worship, God was still at work. And it began with the transformation of just one individual, a young boy, and his name was Josiah. Josiah's father was murdered, and that means he assumed the throne at eight years of age. How many of you would like to see a president who is eight years of age? Do you have some concerns with that? This is what they're facing. But it isn't for another eight years that Josiah, in that role, and as the king, he becomes converted. He has a real encounter with the living God. He begins to worship this God. And so as a result, he purposed to know this God. He sought discipleship. Somebody teach me about this God. By the way, can I just do a little side trail? Is this not something to pray for? The young generation, the next generation, a people, a young people who will stand up and will look around them and say, we are discontent with the evil of our day. We will not stand for this. Instead, we are going to pursue the living God and to find a young generation come up and rise anew to begin to, to stand for what's true, to be sort of like what you see in the emperor, the story of the emperor's clothes, someone who will look and say, there is nothing there. This is false. This is not real. And they would stand for what's right and what's true. This is Josiah. He is an individual who is doing this. After he got himself educated in his faith, another four years go by. And when he's 20 years old, then he realizes, I've got to do some things within the kingdom. We've got to make some changes. And that's exactly what he does. As he goes through, he looks and he finds these various places where people are worshiping. And he stands up and he says, this ends. And he began to take those apart. Now, if that happened, do you think you would find a little pushback? For 57 years, we have a core group of people that have been doing this. And the group at large have held to this. And yet he was faithful and he was diligent to stand up and to find these various places and to begin slowly to remove them one by one. Eight years of this goes by. Now this young king is the ripe old age of 28. And he comes and he looks at the temple of God. And as he looks at it, he thinks to himself, it isn't in good shape. Things need to change. We need to build it up. We need to give it, make it a fixer-upper. 
and clean things in this facility. So he made it happen. And while this is happening, this construction over, uh, overhaul is going on, all of a sudden someone's digging in through some rubble and they find this scroll. They don't know what to make of it. So they begin to look at it and someone gives it over to the high priest. Hey, would you read this? So the high priest takes it and he spreads it out. He begins to read and to look to see what it says, realizes we've got nothing like this in our libraries. This is new to us. A lot of people believe, I tend to align with the thinking, that what they found was a copy of Deuteronomy, based on how the story continues to unfold and the things we learn about what they discovered in that scroll. It's reasonable to think that Manasseh purposed to take that scroll and to hide it, to get rid of it. Someone stored a copy away. And here at just the right time, when God has brought just the right leader, the scroll comes back in. And the high priest reads this. And when he sees the commands of God, when he sees the worship that is prescribed, when he sees what Israel has been doing, and when he reads about the blessings of those who obey and the curses of those who disobey, I'm confident his face went white. And he knew, I've got to pass this on. So he called the secretary to the king. And he says, you need to read this. What is it? Just read it. you got to read it. He sits down. He reads it. Same thing. His face goes white. He says, we've got to turn this over to the king. The king has to see this. Now, Deuteronomy, again, this is the second giving of the law. What all is in there? The laws of God, the purity of what worship is meant to look like. As I mentioned before, blessings and curses. And 57 years of a famine of the word of God means that all of this has long been forgotten and has not been adhered to. Well, when the king gets this, we read in 2 Kings 22, verse 11, what his response is. Well, the Bible tells us when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. To tear your clothes was a sign of mourning. To say, ah, this is agony. This is, this is horrific what I'm hearing. It was a means of taking that which clothed you and laying yourself bare before God. I'm confident that the curses probably stung pretty hard as he knew God to be a God who keeps his word and deep sorrow. And he knew the nation was in trouble. He knew bad things were coming because of their rejection. But he had to wonder, but is this it? Are we consigned to these curses? And in many ways, I think he acts a little bit like Ebenezer Scrooge when he had his third spirit visit him, if you'll remember. And he saw his grave and he asked the spirit, can these things be changed or are they fixed? And the king goes to his prophets and his leaders and his scribes, and he says, I need you to go. We need a clear word from God. Are these things fixed? Or can this be changed? Is there a way out? And at 22.13, his command was, Go inquire the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that's been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So the inquiry, these individuals got up and they went, and you would think they would go to a prophet, but they didn't. And that day you've got two, you've got Jeremiah and Zephaniah, Either they're not close by or they're not accessible, and there are no other male prophets. Note that. I think that is a condition 
of the times that they couldn't find another male prophet who would fulfill his role and responsibility in speaking God's word. So they went to a woman. Her name was Huldah, and she was a prophetess. And when they went to her, she spoke to them like a man. She was very direct. She didn't hold back anything at all. And in verse 15, she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place, and it shall not be quenched. But the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. And so they brought back word to the king. So God delivered a promise, a temporary reprieve. As long as you are alive, Josiah, as long as you continue to remain faithful, the things and the curses that I have promised, they won't happen in your day. Now stop for a minute and be Josiah. You hear these words. You've just received, really, a full copy of the Bible, as far as you're concerned. Books that you didn't even know existed, and they're now in your possession. What will faithfulness to that word look like? For Josiah, it began with a declaration. He would go public. Chapter 23, verse 2. The king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in the hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. He made sure the people knew what he knew. Folks, this is discipleship. This is the first step. He didn't know a lot, but he knew something. And he purposed to take what he knew and bring it in front of the people and make sure that they knew what he knew. Verse 3, the king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. So again, he's making it clear, I'm going public. I'm accountable. I will follow. And like any good, true reformer, he's not going to do this by himself. He now turns around and puts this on the people as verse 3 concludes, and all the people entered the covenant. I'm going into this, and I'm calling you to do the same. Will you? And the people say yes. When you enter an environment, in which you're filthy, and you're dirty, and you're grimy, and you come into your home, what is it that you must do before you come and eat at the table? What did mama say? Wash your hands. If you're really dirty, she said, go get a shower. You got to get cleaned up 
before you come in and have dinner with us. You can't come in as you are. Things need to change. This is what Josiah is doing spiritually. He's looking at himself and he's looking at the people. He says, we got to get a shower. We have to purge. We've got to clean things up, get them aligned. And in 23 verse 4, the scrubbing began by eliminating what was false and what was wrong. And he started with the house of God. Verse 4, then the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. I think it was Julius Caesar who had the famous quote whenever he took his army and he purposed to invade England, that if you want to win a war, when you invade a land, the first thing you do is burn your boats. You burn the boats because now you've taken away any idea that we're going to back out and we're going to go in the opposite direction. And this is what Josiah is doing spiritually. He's burning the spiritual boats. These were the things you worshipped. We're going to completely consume them and we're going to discard them. And the other thing he will do as a means of not going back is he desecrates their worship sites. Verse 5, he did away with the idolatrous priests, and he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. See, in that day and age, to be affiliated with death, to go to a cemetery, to a graveyard, made you unclean. And to take these items, even the dust left over from what he has destroyed, and to put it amongst the dead, now desecrates it. You can't take that back. It has been destroyed forever. He makes the idols irredeemable. Verse 7, he also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord, where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. When you think of those hangings, think it's like having pornographic pictures within your church sanctuary. And it's a means of inspiring worship. This is where things had gone. Folks, one of the first places that the devil will go in steering people awry is through sexuality. You see it right here. And he's going to eradicate the forms of worship in which sexuality is taken and is perverted. You heard this here first. Sex is a holy thing. It is a gift of God. It is meant to be enjoyed between one man and one woman. And if we take the perversions and bring them in and introduce that, God says, that's not my best for you. It's, it's harmful to you, in fact. And so to, God purposes that you cannot take these perversions and bring them to bear. Verse 8, then he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah, and he defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense. So again, he's terminating the places of inappropriate worship. Verse 10, he also defiled Tupheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man may make his son or his daughter pass through the fire from Molech. Note that. This guy stopped the people from killing their innocent children by sacrificing them to their idols. Is there nothing new under the sun? Verse 11, he did away with the horses which the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the official. 
which was in the precincts, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire, and the altars also, which were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. The king broke down, and he smashed them there, and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. And the high places which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right side of the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians. Note that, 300 years of false worship has been going on. Alongside people who would try to worship the true God. And no one had made a change to this point. And now it has stopped. This is a reformation. Verse 15, furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, even that altar and the high place he broke down and then he demolished its stones, ground them to dust and burned the Asherah. If you were here two weeks ago, you remember, we looked at this passage about Jeroboam when the true prophet came and, and made a prophecy and he mentioned Josiah by name years before Josiah came on the scene. And he said, God's going to destroy this land and he's going to bring your blood and your prophet's blood and bodies and burn them here and defile what you consider holy, but God does not. Massive change. As a result, verse 23, 16, when Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were there on the mountain and he sent and took the bones from the graves and he burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these things. And then he said, what is this monument? That I see. And the men of the city told him, That is the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him alone. Let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Those bones were like God's receipt, his proof positive. I told you what I'm going to do. And now you have the evidence. And Josiah said, we will leave that. We will leave that. But it isn't enough to just eliminate. After he eliminates all these things, then he does something different. He resuscitates something else. He resuscitates the Passover meal. And you see it in verse 22. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Not even David or Solomon had seen a Passover instituted in accordance with how Deuteronomy had prescribed it when properly conducted. Some of you might remember, go, well, wait a minute. We remember there was another king, Hezekiah. He had sort of a big spiritual revival. Remember they had a Passover there. But in 2 Chronicles 30, 18, he says of that, that of the multitude of the people, they had not purified themselves, and yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. Josiah said, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to do it right. We're going to fix it in accordance with what God has said. And it's the first time in 370 years. The great poet, writer, Robert Louis Stevenson, the story is told of this guy one night when he's in his bed and he looks out and he sees this guy going down the street and he was lighting the street lamps along the way. And as this is happening, his governors came by and said, what, what is it that you're doing? What are you looking at? And he says, I'm watching a man as he goes down the street 
and he punches holes into the darkness. And that's exactly what God has done through Josiah. It's a day of darkness. And God says, give me the faithful man. And when I have the faithful man, I will use him. And I will begin to punch holes into the darkness. Because we also live in a dark day. Like Josiah, God is going to be calling us to stand for what is true. What has God said? And when we stand on that, you'll see holes punched throughout the darkness to a watching world. This passage prepares us for our Passover, or, or excuse me, not our Passover, for our time of communion and the Lord's Supper. I want to ask the servers that they would to go ahead and make their way and begin to distribute the elements. Tom, where are you? You can make your way up here on the stage as well. It prepares us very well because what we see of Josiah in this Old Testament and in the Old Temple, we see of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the New Temple. Because what does the Bible say about each one of you in the New Testament? You are the temple of God. You are the place where God has now chosen to abide and to live. And the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside and begins to call on you, to give you, to deliver his word. And in so doing, then call you unto obedience. You can go ahead and start serving. And like Josiah, though, for us, we have to start with a little bit of clearing out. Clearing out of our hearts. Initially, we saw this last week when we had baptisms, you got to start by dying to yourself to realize I can't deliver myself. I have to trust in this Messiah, this King, who will cleanse me and make me new. And then as you begin to walk in that newness, you discover, but you still have a flesh and the world still calls to you. And occasionally there's a stepping into it. And before long, if we don't deal with that, we become like what we see here in Israel. There becomes this slow deviation that begins to happen, line by line, step by step, buying into the false ideals along the way. Ideals like relativism, ideals like pluralism, secularism, syncretism, maybe the biggest one of all, materialism. Putting our trust and our confidence in these things in the daily walk of life rather than an alignment with him. And it is so easy to allow the forces of the world to begin to change us, isn't it? Before long, we can talk just like the world talks. Our speech will be no different. Before long, our work ethic begins to change. Before long, we allow the world to teach us our theology and our doctrine and truth, rather than what God has taught us. And if we don't serve the Lord with a whole heart, I'll make you a promise, we will slowly begin to serve the gods of this world. And this time, like the Passover was for them, it'll be a time of reset for us. To not only stop sin, but to start living. To be free of the bondage that for some of us, some of you, maybe you've gotten into and gotten wrapped up, gotten all bound up. And instead of being bound up in that, God wants you to change things and have you start enjoying the freedom and the victory that he has provided for you and is yours. But it begins with a cleansing. It begins with confession to say, this is where I've been. This is what I've walked in. This is what I've done. Now, God, I come to you and I confess it and I receive forgiveness. What's holding you back?
For some of you, it's sexual perversions. You've, got, you've been dabbling in it, and it's come your way. Maybe it's through pornography. Maybe it's through adultery. Maybe it's through fornication. Maybe it's through just flirting with people. Maybe it's even homosexuality. Which is it? God says, your body is my home. And when I come, you have been bought with a price. And as a result, you're mine. And I'm going to come and inhabit you and live through you, but not like this. And you got to come clean. you got to get that right with him. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, you got to pluck it out. If your hand causes you, cut it off. Now, we know he didn't mean literally, because if he did, then Peter, when he denied Christ, would have had to pluck out his tongue. And he didn't do that. This is hyperbole. But it gets the idea across. What is it that you're hanging on to that you're not really dealing with? And God says, we're done. Today is a day of change. Today, we're going to see repentance through confession. And God will purge our sins through confession of the wrongs that we have done. And for others of you, maybe the issue is you put yourself in a self-induced famine of hearing the word of God. It's right here for you, but you don't pick it up and you don't read it. And you're not allowing God to speak to you through it that you would be transformed. But the world is constantly barraging you. It's constantly coming at you. We have to put off the old. But the Bible says there are things we put on too, like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and love, forgiveness, and forgiving one another. Today, in our time of communion, it's your turn to burn your boats, to say, we're not going to live in that any longer. Today is reset, and we're going to move forward in truth and righteousness. Would you bow your heads? Father in heaven, in these next few moments as we take this bread and this wine, as we remember Jesus' body, Jesus' blood spilt for us, Lord, help us, forgive us first for when we just take that for granted. We just assume you'll take care of it, but we don't come with a godly sorrow. We don't come with a, with a heart that desires to change and to be cleansed. Lord, I pray that all of us would be like a Josiah, ready to purge what doesn't belong and to embrace and to pick up what is new and to walk in the new freedom that we have. And so, Lord, in these next few moments, as we spend just silently, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you convict our hearts where we need to be convicted. Where it is that the pressure point is today. And Lord, as we present this, we receive your forgiveness for those sins. Would you take a few moments with just you and God and do that?